0: Thank you, Pastor Moore, once again, and thank you for coming. Lovely to see you all here again. It's always a blessing to see God's people come out, young and old, to sit under the Word of God. And this is definitely a book that's so appropriate for our time and season when even Christians begin to doubt where's God? Is he even interested? Does he even notice our circumstances? And this book is also particularly pertinent because of what's going on in the Middle East. And for the first time in my lifetime, we're reading statements like World War III. I haven't heard that before, since, certainly since the ending of the Cold War. We're now hearing rumors, more than rumors, newspaper reports, senior figures in governments refer to a World War III and all eyes are on that little nation that the world cannot take its eyes off because God's eyes upon it, the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. So what you're going to study and what we have been studying This week is particularly pertinent and relevant to the moment in history that we occupy. Now let's turn to Esther chapter 8 this evening. God willing we'll do this chapter tonight. And if the Lord spares us we'll do the last two chapters together on Friday night. So that will complete the book of Esther. Chapter 8 verse 1 says, On that day did the king Ahasuerus give the house of Haman, the Jew's enemy, unto Esther the queen. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was unto her. And the king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it unto Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman, And Esther spake yet again before the king and fell down at his feet and brought, besought him with tears to put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite and his device that he had devised against the Jews. Then the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, if it please the king and if I have found favor in his sight and the thing seem right before the king. And I be pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamidatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, which are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that shall come unto my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Then the king Ahasuerus said unto Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and him they have hanged upon the gallows, because he laid his hand upon the Jews. Write ye also for the Jews, as it liketh you, in the king's name, and seal it with the king's ring. For the writing which is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring may no man reverse. Then were the king's scribes called at that time in the third month, that is the month Sivan, on the three-and-twentieth day thereof, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded unto the Jews, and to the lieutenants and the deputies and rulers of the provinces, which are from India unto Ethiopia, and hundred-twenty-and-seven provinces, unto every province according to the writing thereof, and unto every people after their language, and to the Jews according to their writing and according to their language. And he wrote it in the king Ahasuerus' name and sealed it with the king's ring and sent letters by posts on horseback and riders on mules, camels, and young dromedaries, wherein the king granted the Jews, which were in every city to gather themselves together and to stand for their life, to destroy, to slay, and to cause to perish all the power of the people and province that would assault them both little ones and women, and to take the spoil of them for a prey upon one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, namely upon the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar. The copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto all people, and that the Jews should be ready against that day to avenge themselves on their enemies." So the posts that rode upon mules and camels went out, being hastened and pressed on by the king's commandment, and the decree was given at Shushan the palace. Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel, of blue and white and with a great crown of gold, and with a garment of fine linen and purple, and the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor and in every province and in every city whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day. And many of the people of the land became Jews for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. What a verse to end this chapter. That God's people, the Jewish people, suddenly became a light to the nations around them. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. Even as we read this chapter, we see that when God begins to work, his people begin to shine. Begin to become that light to the nations. And Lord, it's not just the Jewish people who are called to be a light to the nations, but we, your church, are called to be your light to the nations, to the world around us. We pray for this little church in points past, a church that the world goes past and may sneer and say, these feeble folk, these little flock, who are they? But we know from your word that God's eyes upon this place, the God who made all things, rejoices and delights us to see his people here, worshipping him in spirit and in truth. And we pray that this little witness in this little village will truly be a lighthouse, not just to points past and the countryside around it, but to all the villages and towns of this little land of ours, may all the people hear about the witness of how God works in Points Past Baptist. For these things we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, verse 1 of chapter 8, we're told that King Ahasuerus unilaterally, gives a gift to Esther and her people. And he gives the house of Haman, or his wealth and prestige, power, estate, to this woman, Esther. And Esther then appoints her adopted father, Mordecai, to administer it on her behalf. And such a Statement of verse 1 is just another illustration of the working of God in providence in this story. The man who sought to kill the Jews and plunder their wealth ends up giving his wealth to the Jew. And not just any Jew, the Jew that he particularly hated more than any. Mordecai. Irony? Fluke? Coincidence? No. The finger of God. The fingerprints of God all over this verse 1. And last night I mentioned how Hitler tried to wipe out the Jewish people. And in the end, through his death, it became the means of driving many European Jews to leave the comfort of Europe. Or what they thought was the comfort of Europe. And even Germany itself. And migrate to the Middle East to seek out their ancient homeland, a a land of safety for the Jews, and moved the hearts of the ungodly rulers of the United Nations to put their stamp of approval on the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948. And last night I also mentioned that through the wealth of Germany, its industrial might, around 300 billion euros were sent between 1945 to 2021 in reparations which rebuilt the industrial and military might of the nation of Israel. So God can turn these things. And the God that worked in Esther's day, protecting, preserving, and providing for his people even through the actions of their enemies is still at work today. Protecting, providing, for the Jewish people, even today when they're in their state of rebellion against the Messiah. And God had the last laugh on Hitler, He had the last laugh on Haman, He had the last laugh on Herod and Pharaoh and any other that dared to rise up to put their hand on the people. Of God. And of course, that's not just true of the Jews, but it's also true of all believers throughout all ages. God will have the last laugh on our enemies. And I know we live in the day where we look around our little country and we say, there's so much injustice, isn't there? Wicked men who have done wicked things are strutting around like Hamans. And almost sneering at law and justice. And say, well, I've done what I did and no one can stop me. Some of them are even celebrating it. Well, they can laugh now. But they won't laugh in the hereafter. God will settle all accounts. If not in this life, in the immediate, certainly There'll be a day of reckoning where all evil men will be recompensed for what they have done. that's why you and I don't have to lash out in vengeance or anger. Because we believe that there is a God who will settle all accounts in his time and in his way. Now, as you read verse 1 of chapter 8, you also have to see it from Haman's perspective. Not just from the perspective of Esther and her people and Mordecai. But you have to see the other side of the equation. Because Haman set out to have what we could say to have it all, didn't he? And in the end, he lost it all. Because he was built on the wrong foundation. Someone put it this way. He said, Haman had climbed the ladder of success, but he discovered in the end it was leaning against the wrong building. (laughs) That's a good way of putting it, isn't it? He climbed the ladder of success, or what he thought was the ladder of success. But in the end, he discovered too late that it was leaning against the wrong building. And so many are like Haman building their little empire, building their little career, building their little future on something that won't last and ultimately will fail them. Now, the king has discovered that Mordecai is now his relative by marriage. And the king, we're told, blesses Mordecai and takes the ring which he had given to Haman and hands it to Mordecai. In other words, Haman in his position is now replaced by Mordecai. Now, just pause and think about this. It just demonstrates right up front that Esther and Mordecai didn't have to live a life of deception from the start. If they had just trusted God if they had just honored the God of their fathers in being straightforward with this man Ahasuerus, it probably would have saved them an awful lot of headaches and heartaches. It might even have put a stop to this man Haman rising up in the first place. Certainly it would have saved an awful lot of heartache and pain for Esther and Mordecai if they had just revealed their Jewish identity and the faith of their forefathers from the very beginning. If they had started her marriage the right way instead of the wrong way. And Mordecai and Esther work so hard to advance themselves. That's what you see in the first few chapters, don't you? using all their techniques to get up the greasy pole. And really, they didn't have to. They should have just trusted God and let him advance them in the first place. If you turn to Genesis 41. Genesis 41. A young man demonstrated for Esther and for us, how it should be done. Because in Genesis 41, and we're going to break into the chapter, we have the incident of the story of Joseph. Now, the context is somewhat similar. There's a pagan ruler. There's a pagan emperor of an empire. And there's a young Jewish person. Joseph, a Hebrew. And like Esther, he's alone. Like Esther, he grew up in a, let's use the term, dysfunctional family. With inconsistent parentage in the home that he grew up in. And a terrible example from his brother's all around him. That's all he, li- he lived in a home where it was basically a civil war and all kinds of vile sins were practiced and promoted by his older brothers. He was disliked by them, not because he had done anything wrong, but because of their jealousy and envy, partiality of their father, Jacob. Joseph in a similar way, we could say, maybe even in a worse way, found himself as a slave. And Esther, in reality, is a kind of slave, but a better quality of slavehood in the fact that she has an element of freedom, unlike Joseph. Joseph's in prison. Joseph's a slave. Joseph's alone. And through the workings of providence, Joseph finds himself in a position that no slave or prisoner probably ever found themselves. In the presence of the great king. And in favor with the great king, Pharaoh. And here in verse 15. Well, verse 14 it says, then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. I mean, this is an amazing opportunity. For a man who's languishing in prison. As a foreigner and a slave. And here's Joseph's opportunity to advance himself. To promote himself. To even we could say beg for his freedom. To take advantage of Pharaoh's weakness. And promote Joseph. Here's a golden opportunity. And no doubt Mordecai and Esther. In chapter 2 and 3 of the book of Esther. They would have been saying to Joseph. Now Joseph here. Make the most of this. And Joseph, don't talk too much about religion to this guy, Pharaoh, because he doesn't follow your religion. You just do what you have to do and make sure you strike a good deal. But notice how Joseph handles this situation. Verse 15, and Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I have dreamed a dream and there is none that can interpret it. And I have heard say of thee that thou canst understand a dream to interpret. So Pharaoh gives Joseph, we could say, an own goal here to promote self. Pharaoh says, listen, I have dreamed this dream. And there's no one in Egypt, there's no one in my empire that can help me understand it. But I've heard that you're special. I've heard that you have a gift that all the wise men of Egypt don't have. Now, if Mordecai was standing beside Joseph, he'd say, Now, here's your chance. Keep the religion bit down. And make sure you state your terms clearly. But look at Joseph. And notice even the very first statement he makes to Pharaoh, which says so much about Joseph. And his walk with God. And his trust in the sovereignty of God and the power of God. And his fear of the king who's higher than the king before him. Because Joseph begins and he says, it is not in me. Oh, don't be too impressed with me, Pharaoh. Don't be too seduced by what you see before you. He says, It is not of me, but God. Oh, do you see that? Shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. And then Pharaoh begins to tell him the dream. And we're told in verse 25 And Joseph said unto Pharaoh, The dream of Pharaoh is one God. We oh, see that again. Has showed Pharaoh what he is about to do. Oh, Joseph didn't miss the opportunity to diminish Joseph and to promote God. And you know, old Pharaoh got the message because we're told in verse 38, and Pharaoh said unto his servants, can we find such a one as is? a man in whom the spirit of God is. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, for as much as what? God has showed you. There is none so discreet and wise as thou art. There's a great illustration of how you don't promote self and glorify God in the workplace before the authorities. Of this world. Turn to Daniel chapter 2 just to labor the point because it's worth laboring the point. And like Joseph in a different era, in a different kingdom, another young man who's a slave finds himself before a great emperor, a great king. Nebuchadnezzar. And in Daniel chapter 2, and to break into the chapter again, in verse 26, the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? So the king gives an open goal to Daniel. Here, Daniel, are you able to solve my problem? Make me happy. Golden chance for you, Daniel. Glorify yourself. Promote yourself. Play the greasy pole career game. Play politics. Play the office politics here. To advance yourself above all your peers and all the wise men of Babylon. Here it is, Daniel. Are you willing? What does Daniel do? Look what he says. Verse 27. He says, the secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, show unto the king. But you're lucky. There's a special man before you. King Nebuchadnezzar. Called Daniel. Is that what he said? Now, What did he say? But there is a God in heaven. That revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar, what shall be in the last, latter days, thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. Now, just in case Nebuchadnezzar might be drawn to Daniel as well as Daniel's God. In this incident, look what Daniel says. In verse 30, but as for me. The secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than the living, but for their sakes, that shall make known the interpretation to the king. And thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. You see what Daniel did? Exactly what Joseph did. Deflected all the attention from Daniel to Daniel's God. And you read the story old Nebuchadnezzar got the message too That is about God and not about Daniel in this story. And that's what Esther and Mordecai should have done when they came into the presence of Ahasuerus. They should have continually promoted the God of Israel, the God of creation, the God who sits above the kingdoms of Persia, and the rest of this world, but they didn't in their haste to get promoted. But you know, Mordecai may have missed God's best, and Esther too, but God didn't miss them and forget them. That's a wonderful thing in this story. Despite their failures, despite their imperfections, God still worked through them. And God was still gracious to them. And it's a reminder to us, and I mentioned this, I think, on Monday night, if not Sunday night, that don't give up too quickly on people, particularly those who are young and immature in the faith. Sometimes older Christians have a tendency just to write them off. There's no future. There's no hope. They've made a big mistake. Therefore, that's them finished. Well, many a so one has made great mistakes and recovered from them. No greater one than Simon Peter. You read the gospel accounts, time after time he gets himself in trouble. And after three and a half years, not at the beginning of his walk beside the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest teacher, the greatest example that's ever walked this earth and after three and a half, maybe four years with the Savior and even brought up to the Mount of Transfiguration and seen him in his glory and privileged to see so much, what did Peter do? He betrayed him. In oaths and curses. Not over a period, but in a few hours. Not because there was An army arrayed against him, but a little maid is all it was, all it took for Peter to collapse. And even though Christ had warned him, Peter, you're in danger. You're not as strong as you think you are. Peter let him down. Peter betrayed him. And if ever there was a candidate to be written off, was hopeless for future ministry, we would say, Peter, But Jesus didn't see him that way. In fact, Jesus restored him. And he became not just an instrument in God's hand, but he became a mighty instrument. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, when he preached, 3,000 people were converted. The Bible says the very shadow of Peter passing by would heal people. He was appointed the apostle to the circumcision. What an honor. How God used him over many, many decades despite his failures. God always uses imperfect people because there isn't any other type of people to use. That's the good news for all of us that he can work in spite of our failures and even through our failures. Now, that doesn't excuse him, there's always a consequence. Peter would tell you, I wish I hadn't have been so proud and so full of myself and did what I did, but God used him in spite of that. Same for David, same for Moses, same for Abraham. And even the same we say for Esther and Mordecai. God was able to work through them. Now, verse 3 is a very interesting verse as well keep saying everything is interesting, but this one is. Because it says, And Esther spake yet again before the king, and fell down at his feet, and besought him with tears to put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite and his device that he had devised against the Jews. Now, remember Esther had already risked her life for her people. She's now been rewarded by the king and her adopted father, Mordecai, has been rescued from any danger by being elevated to the position of Haman. So in many respects, it would be easy for Esther to say, my work's done. Let let the Jews handle the rest of the problems. I've I've gone far further than anybody else. I've risked so much already. And now I'm safe the king knows I'm a Jew. Mordecai safe and in a powerful position. Well, let them handle the rest. But for the very first time, we see Esther pleading with tears for her people. The selfishness, the self-promotion that she had at the beginning of this story and encouraged by Mordecai at the beginning of this story is now really changing in this woman, isn't it? It's Disappearing. And she really has a heart for her people, a passion for her people. And she's lost interest in Esther and she's got a heart for the ordinary men and women and children of the Jewish people. And she's really burdened. And you have to marvel at the change in her and the wisdom of her and how she comes to this king and she knows that the consequences of the sin survives or at least a significant amount of the consequence of the sin of Haman survives and has to be dealt with and she asks the king in a very gracious way very humble way she says in verse five if it please the king And if I have found favor in his sight, and the things seem right before the king, and be pleasing in his eyes. Oh, she's so polite and so meek and careful. And she says, let it be written to reverse the damage done by Haman. And she says, for how can I endure to see the evil that shall come unto my people? And I think she's speaking very honestly here. I can't live in safety and prosperity knowing that my people. And this is the first time we're really reading of these expressions. My people. Oh, what a what, what a powerful identification now we're seeing between Esther and her people, the Jewish people. And she says to the king, I can't live if something happens to even to one of them. Now, the king responds to, Mord- to Esther. He says, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and him they have hanged upon his gallows, because he has laid his hand upon the Jews. But then he gets to where Esther really wants him to get to. He says, Write ye also for the Jews, as it liketh you. He says, use your wisdom. Now, the king, for the first time, is trusting Esther. Do you see this? To use the term, this is the chauvinist pig of Persia. This guy, Ahasuerus. And he has his trophy wife, Esther. One of his many in his harem. And yet, for the very first time, he's coming to her and he's respecting her and he respects her wisdom to the point he says you you write the law Esther and I'll just sign it to reverse what has happened here we can't change the law but we can write another law that will in effect undermine what has already been passed and he says seal it with the king's ring. In other words, it's almost like he gives Esther a blank credit card and says, you just go and fill in the details, whatever you want. You and Mordecai, use your wisdom. And what a change has happened in the relationship now between Esther and this man, Ahasuerus. And let me say this, if God could change the heart of Ahasuerus? Could he not change the heart of the wicked in your life, your neighborhood? Could he not move in the hearts of your sons and daughters who are outside of Christ? Could he not move in your family, your neighbors? your town, your village. Surely that's a great point to make from this incident, that if God can work in the heart of one of the most proud pagans who's ever lived and make him open to Esther like this and Mordecai, could he not do something wonderful in the hearts and minds of those around you? And the answer is obviously what? Yes. Didn't he move Pharaoh's heart to be a blessing to Joseph? Didn't he move the heart of Nebuchadnezzar to be a blessing to Daniel and his friends? And here he moves the heart of this proud, pagan, ruthless, self-absorbed tyrant, Ahasuerus. When I went to Lauren Mission Hall just over a year ago, and I say this without any pride involved, I was told by many of those who had been many years in the church, lived in the town for many years, that the people around the hall have no interest in the things of God, no interest in ever setting foot in the hall. And certainly... Almost nobody from Larn itself ever gets saved. And that was the received wisdom, and I don't condemn those who made that observation. That was their experience, their lived experience, to use that fancy term people use, use today. Well, when I read my Bible, it doesn't say anywhere that the fields are white unto harvest, but not in Larn. It doesn't say that. It didn't say, except a man be born again apart from those in learn. He cannot see the kingdom of God. It didn't say, for God so loved the world apart from Lorne. And I was listening to John Weir, who was down speaking one day, and he said that he'd grown up in the Donegal Road. And not once, he said, in all the years that he grew up there, until the day, or really the time he was saved and then his mum was saved and his dad was saved he said and his sister was saved did anyone ever knock their door? Did anyone ever give them a tract? Did anyone even tell them that Jesus saves? In so called loyalist South Belfast Donegal Road, so called for God and themselves really what they stand for And I said to myself, well, that's not going to be the case in Lorne because I'm going to knock every door and talk to every sinner who's willing to talk and tell them that Jesus saves. And I announced it from the pulpit so I couldn't walk it back. It's easy to say privately and not do it, but it's very hard when you say it publicly and then don't do it. We began and I began to go out on the doors. Then some others have gone out as well. And as we've done that, what do we discover? There are people, in fact, there are many people who are looking for answers. Many people who are lost and know they're lost. Just nobody has bothered to tell them. How to get saved. And the way of salvation. Over the last few months in particular. We've seen quite a few saved. And almost every single one. Is a stone's throw from the hall. And come in. Almost all from godless backgrounds. And I say the same to you. Don't look around points past tonight. And shrug your shoulders and say. Huh the people of the village never come to this church. Well, go out and talk to them. Go out and tell them that there's a place here that cares for them, loves them, because there's a saviour who's passing through points pass every Sunday in this place. And he's willing and able to save. And you'll be surprised Because Jesus said, "What the harvest truly is plenteous. Now, that's as true as John 3.16 is true, isn't it? Is that part of the Bible? It is part of the Bible. The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. You make sure you there's not a single house in points past that doesn't know there's a Christian gospel witness here. I'm not just talking about putting a sign outside your church. Anybody can do that. But you go and talk to them. And then, when you finish points past, go to Lockbrickland and tell them. And Scarva. And every house in between. You make sure. You can't reach everybody in this country, but you can reach the ones around you, can't you? And who knows what God could do if you adopt that attitude and say, Lord, you opened the heart of Ahasuerus. You touched the heart of this pagan king. Could you not touch the heart of the Hamans and the Ahasuerus and the Nebuchadnezzars who live all around here? Of course he could. Well, let me move on. Verse 10. Mordecai writes these letters and he's learned he says shrewd boy Mordecai he's he's watched what Haman did and he's learned from it and he's replicating what Haman did and he sends out throughout all the empire letters and really what the letters are saying is to all the Jews and to all those who seek the hurt of the Jews that the king is on the side of the Jewish people. The power of the empire is behind the Jewish people. And if you dare rise up against them, on your own head be it. And now, what God is doing in providence is even better than simply reversing the first law. If God had just tip-exed out the first law and annulled it, they would be back where they were in chapter 1 but now by permitting the second law the jews are going to be able to identify their enemies and deal with their enemies and even enjoy the spoils of their enemies so they're going to be in a much better position than he would have been if god had simply annulled that first law oh we see the wisdom of god In this matter. And if you're having a difficult time this week with the Hamans around you, just read this book and be blessed. And what a difference 24 hours has made in the lives not just of Haman, but of Esther, Mordecai, and all the Jewish people. And at the end of it, we're told of this chapter, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. What brought them to that position? The wisdom of Esther? The wisdom of Mordecai? A bit of good luck? No, none of these things. God had worked behind the scenes in Providence in the secret way. In the unobserved way. There was no thunder and lightning. There was no Moses casting down the plagues. But God worked behind the shadows, in the shadows. And He turned everything upside down. And He not just thwarted, but He defeated the devil's purpose and plan to destroy the Jewish people. And now for the first time, the people are rejoicing. But even more importantly, the end of verse 17, and this is so beautiful. It says, and many of the people of the land became Jews. In other words, they gave up their pagan religion their pagan ways and they said we want to embrace the one true God, the God of Israel we want to embrace the promises and what were those promises the promises that from the Jewish people would come the saviour of the world would come the one who would deal with the problem of sin, would be the one who would come to right every wrong and one day rule over this earth. And it's no surprise when we get to the gospel accounts that who came to visit the Lord Jesus Christ? Wise men from where? The east. Where did they learn about a savior who would be born king of the Jews? Certainly from Daniel and his friends and Ezekiel. But I believe some of these people that's mentioned here we part of that illustrious band. And although we sing we three kings of Orient, the Bible doesn't say there were three kings. It just says a, a cortege of wise men from the east. There may have been many, many of them. In fact, I suspect there was a great cortege. Because when they came, Herod and the whole of Jerusalem knew about it. It wasn't just one or two or three sticking their head around the door. It was a buzzus. And they carried such great wealth in their gifts that they would have needed a great cortege of bodyguards. Well, these were no insignificant people. And here's the blessing that now comes from Esther and Mordecai doing the right thing. Not only is their lives changed, and they promoted and blessed but they're now having an impact on other people, the unbelievers. See what happens when you do the right thing the right way. If you turn to the book of Acts, and time is nearly over. Acts chapter 2. And I'm just going to jump in at verse 47. Well, look at pick at verse 46. It says, They continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Sounds a little bit like what's going on in Esther chapter 8, doesn't it? Praising God. Having favor with all the people. And then it says, and the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. They began to make an impact on those around them. Didn't have a church building. Didn't have a budget. Didn't have a sermon audio web stream. Didn't have flyers, and it's great to have all these things. Didn't have any... Fancy microphones, air-conditioned, heated buildings. Didn't have all the things we had, but when God began to move in their lives, people began to notice. Remember it says in the gospel that it was noised abroad that Jesus was in that place. Don't you see it there? How many were in the upper room? 120. 120. Philip Schaff, the church historian, tells us by the end of the first century, and he gives a very conservative estimate. So seventy years. He tells us that one in ten of the Roman Empire, an empire of about hundred million people, one in ten by the end of the first century, profess Christianity as their faith. Now I'm not saying they're all Christians. what I am saying, and that that was a time when it wasn't easy to be a Christian. It certainly wasn't easy to probably identify as a Christian. But by the end of the first century, 70 years, less than 70 years from Acts chapter 2, 1 in 10. One of the emperors famously asked one of his closest advisors, go and study these Christians and why they grow so quickly and why they have such influence amongst the ordinary people. And he came back and he summed up his report with these words, behold how they love one another. There's something special about them. There's something different about them. There's something attractive about these people. I was in Turkey recently and the ancient city of Ephesus and one of the oldest churches there church buildings it says carved on the door we had a guide who could read the Greek and she was able to translate it for us what it said and it said this if I can remember just in the gist of it all who enter here this is the way to become free. Now that had a tremendous impact on an empire that was full of slaves. That you can come into the church in terms of the physical building where the New Testament church met in that area, and you as a slave can become a free person in Christ and have worth and value and dignity because of the gospel. And that's still true today. And we are called not to be a little holy huddle in points path. And we certainly should be a holy huddle. But we're called not just to be a holy huddle. But we're also called to be a light. And a witness. And a testimony. To those around us. And now in Esther chapter 8. They're really becoming that witness. And a blessing. Now, let me finish, because my time is gone, by summing up not just this chapter, but this book. But as you read this book, remember the history that's recorded here is not simply incidental to us. It's not simply there to entertain us. And I think that's always the danger of all these little sto- children's story Bibles and story books, that some Christians never grow out of those stories. Because you've got to go deeper. You've got to mine more from the Word of God than simply the surface detail, the drama. Because what this book is telling us, there is a God. Who really is in charge of this world. There is a God who really understands what's going on in the lives of his people. Who's really intimately involved in the lives of his people. And he not just preserves us. But he provides for us. And he has done that consistently. Since Adam walked this earth to the last saint walks this earth. God is the God of all his people. And it's easy to forget that when we're in a day where there's social media and everything's going so fast. And sin seems to be abounding. Wicked men and the humans are strutting around boasting in their sin. It's easy to forget that. It's easy to become discouraged It's easy when we have so much in terms of material possessions to become complacent. The book of Esther is to remind you and I that what might begin in tears for God's people will always end in joy. Weeping endures, the Bible says, for a night, but joy comes in the morning I had to go to a house this morning of a lady who passed away this morning a Christian woman who left behind a Christian husband and Christian children and grandchildren and it's difficult in certain times like that to know what to say because you don't want to simply Throw out a few empty platitudes. And when you're a pastor, you face these things all the time, don't you? And it's it's easy to turn to the familiar passages and sort of go into remote control. And I said, I feel I should read Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Because I know many of you in this room wanted this dear woman to be at least another while longer in this world. But I said Ecclesiastes chapter 3 tells us there's a time to be born, but there's a time to die. And after that great list of sovereign appointments of God making decision after decision in our lives and in our world... Uh, the writer to the Ecclesiastes says, he have made everything beautiful in his time. He. And you and I have to accept that in the life of this lady who's passed on, God has made no mistake. And He take, he's decided today is the day That she is to go home to heaven. And that may be hard. To live with. But I said heaven. Is a place of perfect reunion. And although the storm may rage. As the old hymn says. The anchor holds. In the storm. Because he's made no mistake. He made the choice. You know, everyone in this room is in one of three places. You're in confusing times, you're coming out of confusing times, or about to go into confusing times. It's really where we all are, isn't it? God's going to test us in one of those three ways, or maybe in all those ways. And you've got to make a choice. You either hurt with God or you hurt without God in your thoughts. You choose. Maxwell Cornelius was a Presbyterian pastor. Sorry, Pastor David. No Presbyterians weren't all far always wrong. Maxwell Cornelius grew up in the United States. And you know, his wife passed away suddenly. And then he suffered a terrible injury where he lost his leg at the same time. He had to go to her funeral and everybody was wondering, how is this old pastor going to handle this situation? He stood up at her funeral and he said, I have a poem to read that I have read, that I have written, sorry. I've been reflecting on Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And he says it goes like this. And some of you in this room will know the words because you've sung the hymn. It says, not now, but in the coming years. It may be when with Christ we stand. We'll read the meaning of our tears. Sometime, sometime, we'll understand. And then the chorus goes like this. Then trust in God through all your days. Fear not, for he doth hold thy hand. Though dark thy way, still sing and praise. Sometime, sometime we'll understand. If the God that you worship always does what you want, you're not following the God of the Bible. Isn't that right? That's another of the lessons of the book of Esther. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that we have learned so much as we have read and meditated, and thought about this wonderful book of Esther. And we see the great hero in this story is not Esther or Mordecai, but the great hero in this story is the God of Esther and the God of Mordecai. And Lord, we pray that each of us here will hear your voice, will see your hand at work, In all our lives. And like old Maxwell Cornelius. Just simply say. Sometime. Sometime. We'll understand. For these things we ask in Jesus precious name. Amen. Amen.